Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. To the Christmas story that at the center of it is this baby, Jesus, who says nothing, doesn't do much, but there's this flurry of activity going on around him in the preparation and the receiving uh, of him as God incarnate. And so this week we're going to be looking at the perspective um, of, of the angels and the divine. Angels, I know, are everybody's favorite subject matter, and we won't get too weird uh, today, I promise, but if you want to have conversations about angels after this. Uh, we can do that. Anybody remember Angels in the Outfield? Anybody else like in their 30s? Yeah, there we go. I think it's exactly like that. I think it was a lot, a lot of research went into that role, yeah. Um, well, let's pray. I'm going to pray for you, and you pray for me, and we're going to get right into this. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time. Um, Lord, I know I'm just in my own heart, I've been just meditating on this idea of, of starting again. Um, not with the flurry and the busyness and the, the tasks and all of the things that need to be accomplished, but being able to slow down, uh, to learn to wait, to receive from you an expectation, um, an anticipation, and a hunger uh, to receive you again. Lord, I pray for all of us that we might not get so caught up in the idea of what Christmas is that we become numb uh, and that we miss it. I mean, wouldn't that be the greatest tragedy for the season to have skipped by and we lost it? We were so caught up in the stuff that we missed you speaking and moving and, and, and coming anew that we might receive you, um, maybe in the ways that we most desperately need to receive you in this holiday season. So Lord, be with us. We give you permission to do whatever you desire to do within our hearts, uh, within our minds today. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so the passage that we were uh, looking at today is from John chapter 1. So if you want to open your Bibles or your phones or whatever and, and keep that in front of you, um, I would encourage you to do that. We're going to be looking at a couple passages from it. And at, at kind of first sight, John 1 seems like an odd reading for the nativity. We're, we're kind of used to what we see little kids putting on in nativity plays, that there's a donkey and a stable. And, you know, uh, there, this is one of my like, favorite stories. You know, like there's, you always see those things going around and, and you wonder, like, what of the churches where these things happen, like we actually had one of those growing up. I was already out of the house. You know, many of you know my dad's a pastor, and um, they had a lot of kids. They're put on an activity play, and there was these two little twin boys, and they were three and a half. And my dad came to them and said, "What do you guys want to be for the play?" You know, you end up with like extra shepherds and fifteen sheep or whatever. You know, and one of the little boys, um, he was really into killer whales at three and a half. That was his jam. So he told my dad, "I want to be a killer whale," and he said. Okay, we're going to do that. And his grandma made him like the best killer whale outfit that you've ever seen in a nativity play. And he literally just lay at the edge of the stage and did this <laughs> for like half an hour. And it saved souls. So um, that's the kind of image that we normally associate when we talk about Christmas. We start with the particular. 
You know, and that's really how the Gospels of Matthew and Luke do it. They, they start with this image of the baby, and it kind of builds. And the grand conclusion in many ways of those Gospels is, oh my goodness, this is God himself. John goes the other way. We call this a high Christology, which means that we start with the perspective of God and the, in the kind of large, grand, cosmic scale, and then we bring it down into the particular when we meet Jesus in his ministry. But it's no less an important angle of the Christmas story. And I think it's important because it allows us to peer at the Christ child through the perspective of God himself uh, and the divine, the angels. And so we're moving from divine into human, but we're telling the Christmas story from the heavenly perspective. And so what we're going to be looking at today are two major concepts in John chapter 1. The first being incarnation and the second being light. Um, I love that word incarnation. It's, it's central to our Christian faith. And um, in the middle of incarnation is the word carne. And if you are uh, a Spanish speaker, you know carne means meat. And that's actually, right? Okay. Andre's giving me the nod. I got that one right. Um, but carne meaning meat is actually a really good way to remember this. It means enfleshment, the, the, the in meat, in meat mint of God. God put in flesh. Some of you are already looking at me like I'm weird. This is theology. This is how theology works. Incarnation means to take the divine and to put it into flesh. And the second thing that we're going to be looking at is another kind of analogy, another metaphor of, of the light of all mankind. And so let's begin with this idea of the word becoming flesh. What does that mean? What do we find in the, the picture of God being enfleshed or incarnated in the person of Jesus? What is that meant to tell us this Christmas season? Jesus is the perfect picture of what God is really like. He always has been and always will be. This is imperative for us to understand at all points within our Christian journey that if you cannot say it about Jesus, you cannot say it about God. And a lot of times what happens when we have a poor perspective of the Bible or church history or theology is that we often end up with these images of God that are in conflict with one another. And we read something in the Bible and then we look at Jesus and then we try to figure that out and they all kind of weigh the same. But we have to understand, even the writers of the scriptures themselves said, no, Jesus is the best image of God that we have ever received and nothing will come close to that. And so if you do not see a characteristic of God reflected in Jesus, it is submitted to him. This is very important for us to understand. This is why we're Christians and not Biblians. But Jesus is perfect theology. What does that mean? It means the first mission of Jesus to come, to be in flesh, to be incarnated, the primary mission on, Jesus, on, on earth for Jesus was to reveal God in how he really is. Because if you read the Old Testament, you know they're getting these glimpses. You know, several years ago we did this series called Signposts in the Mist. And it's about how the Old Testament is kind of pointing to the person of Jesus as the perfect revelation of who God is. And so in the Old Testament, they're trying to figure it out. And they're receiving this encounter with God. They're piecing together what he's like. But all these signs in scripture, all the, the words of the prophets are pointing. No, God is going to reveal himself fully down the road in his Messiah, in his Christ. And so the primary mission of Jesus was to come and to show us this is what God is really like. 
Now, the last series we did before we entered into Advent was going through the letter to the Philippians. We called it Thinking Christianly. And I, and I got really stuck on this perspective. In Philippians 2, 1 through 11, there's this beautiful Christ hymn, this poem that maybe Paul wrote or was kind of part of the early church that he quotes um, within his letter. And it says, Jesus, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality something to be taken advantage of. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And a lot of times when we look at that perspective, that Jesus was equal to God, but he forsook heaven to enter into earth, to make himself less than us, to save us, we think along the way, at some point, Jesus is letting go of his divinity, right? Jesus kind of rejects his divinity, he he kind of throws it off like it's a cloak, and he becomes a human being, and that's how he's able to encounter what he does. And I think this is problematic, because what it says is, oh, the divine can't really mess with this. Like you and me, we're, we're, we're messy, we're kind of, we're icky, we're covered in sin cooties, and like God can't really be around that because God is perfect, right? And perfection has to kind of float above us. You know, many of us have internalized this idea of perfection is like somehow in order for something to be ultimately perfect, we have to erase the humanity out of it. That's why so many of us are emotionally repressed. Because we believe in order to be perfect, you have to remove the humanity, you have to remove the emotion, you have to remove the stuffness of life. And so if God is truly perfect, then he can't possibly be present in all of this mess of the human experience. But I wonder if rather than perceiving this idea that Jesus forsakes his divinity... He gets rid of his godness in order to become a human so he could be in present with us. What if that is the very nature of God himself? What if that's the proof of Jesus' divinity, not the thing that he leaves behind? I think the divinity of Jesus, the God-likeness of God incarnate, is proven by self-emptying love. That that highest form of love is not the exception to the rule. That's exactly how God is. And the problem is when we don't understand that, we paint these portraits of God, we maintain this idea of perfection and might and strength. And that God will save the world by coming in and beating up the bad guys and putting everything back in order. God is the giant policeman in the sky um, that's going to fix everything. And that there was an interesting little thing that happened with Jesus kind of sacrificing himself for all of humanity, but... That was this just little blip. Ultimately, God is really like this. You see, and then when we begin to paint these portraits of this, this afterlife or this second coming, it's like God was a really nice guy for a couple thousand years in the person of Jesus, but there's going to come a moment he's really serious and he's going to come and he's going to bring a sword and there's going to be blood and it's going to be nasty because that's ultimately what God's like because he loses his patience with, with humanity. And he has to purge all the sin out of the world through violence. And we miss it. Because what we've done is we've chosen our theology over the theology of Jesus. We've chosen to believe this is what God's really like as opposed to what we see in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to make God known to us, not to leave behind Godness. God, this God that we worship is not like the gods of our ancestors, these pagan gods that lived up on top of mountains and didn't really want to mess with us, so we had to do the rain dance to get their attention. I told you several weeks ago that I watched all the Hobbit movies in preparation for that sermon, whatever that one was about. 
I take my job very seriously. So this week I watched Thor, of course, if you're going to talk about gods. And, you know, there's this moment where, like, Thor, um, this, this is like maybe a spoiler alert, but the movie's, like, 12 years old. So if you haven't seen Thor by now, I feel sorry for you. Uh, but the idea, you know, Thor's a god, and he's kind of brash, and he's reckless, and so his father, Odin, takes his power from him. He becomes a mere mortal. He comes down to earth, and it's only at the moment when he's willing to sacrifice himself, even in his humanity, that Mjolnir, the, the hammer of Thor, and the source of all his power, blasts up into the sky, and then comes down, and he reaches up, and he grabs it with his hand. He stands up, and all of a sudden, his armor just shows up on his body magically, and then um, Natalie Portman's like, oh my gosh, is this how you always dress, this is a great look, and then he defeats the bad guys, right? And that's a lot of times how we think about God. It's like God was awesome and all this stuff, and then Jesus came and he forsook all of that, he became a weakling like us, and then at some point his godness kicked back in, and then he became God again. And it's so tragic that we think of that, because what it does is it keeps the idea of divinity at arm's length. Divinity cannot possibly be close to humanity. And therefore God is not particularly compassionate. He doesn't really understand what it means to be a human being. But if we choose Jesus' perfect theology, then we recognize that the divine can be near us, can be with us. Even in the time of Jesus, we see this all the time. The Pharisees are coming and saying, Jesus, don't you know that you're, you're eating with sinners and tax collectors? They've got cooties. You can't do that. And he says, you think your holiness means that you have to kind of hover above the human realities. Like you have to hover above the existence of human beings and somehow become more. But my holiness actually permits me to be fully present to being a human being, to the suffering of other human beings. And to say, guess what? I'm with you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You are not discounted because of your past. You are not discounted because of your present. I am fully present to you. And that is the evidence of the perfection of God. So as I was kind of meditating on this passage, I'm thinking then, how does this image of God, if Jesus' primary mission was to reveal to us what God is really like, why do we start with this image of a vulnerable, defenseless baby? Again, why don't we get the Thor? Why doesn't God, you know, oftentimes we get frustrated when we're reading the news and that's what we want. We want Thor to come down and just kind of sort everything out on earth, like to bring quote unquote justice, which again, justice just usually means beat up the bad guys, reestablish the borders, and we've like won the world. But that's not the way that God decides to do it. He comes in the image of a vulnerable and defenseless baby. And we see this prophesied uh, in the book of Isaiah. We looked at uh, chapter 9 last week. This is a little clip from uh, chapter 11. There's this image of like, this is what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes to reveal God and to bring a true sense of justice. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. There's this dramatic image of the natural order of things, which we so easily accept. Well, there's just inherently good guys and bad guys, and, and, and there's lions and there's lambs, and this is just the way the world works, and we kind of sink into that status quo-ness. But the, the image that we're getting from Isaiah is, no, all of the things that you take for granted that you just accept, this is the way the world is supposed to be, God is going to do something very different. And God is going to bring about things that we perceive as unnatural because we have accepted the brokenness of the world around us. And he's going to do that through a little child, through a baby. 
So God doesn't want to come and just contribute to the status quo of the world by being just even stronger and having an even larger hammer of Thor. But he actually comes as this baby to reveal the central truth about who God is and who we really are. You know, I love Christmas hymns. I, apparently Steve loves Christmas hymns even more than I do, Christmas carols. Every fifth, your wife said every fifth song on your, on your iPhone is a, is a Christmas carol, and that's during the rest of the year. Um, and I love Away in a Manger. You, you all are familiar with that. Um, it's interesting, in Great Britain, there's actually a different uh, melody to Away in the Manger, which is kind of fun. So, useless information there. And I, I love that song, but there's this line in it where it says, no crying he makes. Right? You're familiar with this? You know that's not biblical? Like, that's not in there. And it's really interesting. Why, why did we put that in there? Oh, because if Jesus is really God, he wouldn't cry. God doesn't cry. God isn't needy. Like, he just looks like a baby, but he's not really a baby. And it's so tragic. See, we've so subtly internalized this idea that perfection means there's no messiness, there's no emotion. It's kind of hovering about the realities of what it means to be a human being, so no crying he makes. Jesus, as a baby, it couldn't possibly actually be vulnerable, defenseless. God could not actually be vulnerable, could he? Could God actually be moved by what he perceives in humanity? Could God be defenseless? Could God make himself needy? Could God rely on human beings? You see, that vision of what God is really like bumps up against everything else that we've been told. Because subtly, here's what happens. If that's the way that you believe God is like, then you look upon your own humanity with shame, right? Or how many of you are needy? How many of you find yourselves vulnerable and defenseless? And we feel shame because we're supposed to be like Christ, right? We're supposed to follow God. We're supposed to become more like him. And so to admit our weakness, to admit that we are defenseless or that we are needy, brings us shame because we're reflecting poorly on God. But it's interesting, the very first image that God wants to give us of what he's really like in the person of Jesus is a defenseless, vulnerable, innocent baby. So the second reason that Jesus came was to teach us about our true nature. The first reason was to come to show us this is what God is really like. This is the image of God against which every other image of God has to submit. The second was to say this is what it really means to be a human being. Divinity arrives as a baby so that we might accept who we are as the beloved. The core of your identity the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing of who you are is that you are the beloved. Because this is what we recognize in babies. Babies are not very good citizens. I don't know if you've been around babies. They're takers. They don't contribute a lot. Yes, they're nice and they smile at you and you get some warm, fuzzy feelings from that. But mostly they just puke on you and just cry all the time. They're not good at contributing to the larger project of whatever we're doing in society. But the power, this, 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 the, uh, the irony, like the power and the authority a baby has is when there's a baby in the room, everything shifts and becomes about that baby. 
usually because either we're incredibly attracted to babies and we think they're wonderful, or we're incredibly repulsed and we're terrified. But regardless, they carry a whole lot of power and authority over everybody in the room. Like, the room isn't the same if there's a baby in it. And I think this is so powerful because it shows us something about who we are as being the beloved, that our identity is not based upon our performance, it's not based upon what we contribute, it's not based upon how strong or powerful we are or how good a representation we can be of God if we work really hard and we put on like the armor and we have a nice smiling face and we've got our testimony down to two minutes or whatever we need to do in order to make the best presentation of God. None of that is who we really are. Because your identity is the beloved has nothing to do with whether or not you are worthy. Your identity as the beloved of God has nothing to do with whether or not you show up and you do things right. It's not about whether you're even able to receive your true identity. It's just what is true about you. Because you don't have to decide who you are. God has already decided that for you. The challenge becomes to live into the reality of who God says you are as your truest self and to let go of all of the other narratives that you've imported from society around you that's trying to tell you who you are, mostly so that you'll buy stuff that you don't really need. Can we preach about consumerism in the Christmas season? Several years ago, we were getting ready to come to the table and the Lord gave me this vision. I grew up uh, from age five to 13 in Michigan. Anybody else from the Midwest? Yay. So, uh, we have snow. You're like, yeah, I live here. That's why I no longer live there. There's this great quote. uh, I don't remember the name of the comedian. Mark will love this. This guy, he goes, this comedian says, yeah, I uh, used to be from Iowa until I realized you didn't have to be from Iowa. And that's why most of us are here. But the Lord gave me this vision. You know, we grew up in the winter, it was like literally three feet of snow, which we all knew how to actually drive and everything, so it wasn't that big a deal. But we'd often go outside to play. This is in the 90s when children went outside and they played. They call it free-range parenting now. It was just called parenting. Back in the 90s, go outside, don't come home until, you know, we go outside and we build igloos and all this. It was me and Scott, two years younger than me, and Joel, four years younger than him. And Joel had the, the, the snowsuit that was like the little kid in the Christmas story, the little brother who's like a little star running around because he can't put his arms down. Uh, and if you know anything, if you grew up in that, you know it takes a long time to get ready to go outside. You've got to put on layer upon layer upon layer. And then you hear, the, your, you know, your mom calls you in, and you have to come in. You have to stand in the mudroom or the pantry or wherever it is, and you have to begin to peel off all those layers. And it's a, it's a ceremony. It takes about 30 minutes to complete, to get it all off. But you can't bring that stuff to the table, Right? Um, so we would, we would have to do that. We'd have to take off the hats and the gloves and the snow boots and the you know, thermal underwear, whatever. And then we were actually able to come and to sit at the table with our family and sup with them and connect. And the Lord gave me this vision. He reminded me of what that was like to say, when you come to my table, that's what it's like. That all, all of this false identity... Your performance, what your family thinks of you, what your friends think of you, your, 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 your job and, and, and your winning personality and all of these things about you, they're not evil in and of themselves, but every once in a while we need to be reminded that is not who we truly are. That our true identity is a gift that is received from God because of how he sees us, not about our own self-worth, not about our own performance or any of that. And so when we come to the table, we have to strip off all the false 
false identity of our personality, of our jobs, of our performance, of what society tells us, to come naked to the table, to become vulnerable like the baby Jesus, and to say, all I can do is have my hands open to receive from you my own belovedness. So that when I leave the table, after I have supped with my father, after I've allowed him to speak back over my, my true nature, I can go back out into the world. I can pick up those things. I can do amazing things. I can engage with people, but none of that is tied into the core value of who I really am. And so how do we receive the Christ child in this Advent season? First of all, as a vision of what God is really like, and secondly, as a vision of who we really are in our belovedness. And I want to read this one passage in, the, in John chapter 1 that we looked at, verses 9 to 13, and I'm going to read it in the message because I think the, the language that Eugene Peterson chooses here is so fascinating. He says, the life light was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world. The world was there through him. And yet, the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, whoever believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, the child of God's selves. These are the God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten. Sounds like a book, sex-begotten. I don't know, somebody write that book. So we're getting this juxtaposition that, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's the incarnation of what God is really like. He's the light of God. And then we get this, this juxtaposition between those who receive him for who he really is and by extension to accept who they really are because of that and those who reject him, who say, no thanks. We'd rather do things the way that we are. And the invitations here in the word made flesh and the light of all mankind is to receive, first of all, intimacy with God. This is what God is really like and we are capable of having intimate relationship with him. And secondly, to receive our identity. That our identity is not in our bloodline. It's not in our ethnicity. It's not in our heritage. It's not in any of these things that we normally ascribe our identity to. Our identity is in being of God, being children of God, being received by him as the perfect father. Maybe even in the Christmas season, you need to do a little work with God to redeem the idea of Father because it's imperative to you, for, for you to understand your belovedness. But there were those who did not receive him. This isn't the vision of God that they wanted because that God didn't prop up their agendas. That God didn't give them what they wanted. If you remember that during the story of Jesus, many were very, very disappointed, to put it mildly, that this is what God was like and this was God's plan. Because they actually wanted God to come in, to take up arms with them, to lead them into violent revolution, to reestablish the borders of Israel, and to kick out the bad guys, and, and, and we are the best. Our tribe is number one. That was what everybody was, accept, uh, was expecting, and that's what got Jesus crucified. And how often do you and I do that? We receive the God as revealed in Jesus only insofar as he props up our agenda. We receive the God revealed in Jesus just as long as he toes the party line, as he says and does what we need him to say and do to reinforce that our tribe is the right tribe and the others are the wrong tribe. They're the ones uh, that are in trouble when God really comes uh, to bring heaven on earth. 
You see, when you and I, when we give, give up hope that God is on the move, that God is here and he's with us, when we have these wrong ideas of perfection, when we think that we're alone and we have to do it, we're the ones that are responsible for fixing the world, we conform Jesus to our agenda and we're no longer revealing the kingdom of God. We started to build our own personal empires, which began with self-definition. Talked about the heresy of the American experiment, that you get to import, you get to decide who you are. You're a self-made person, you're a self-made man, you're a self-made woman. You get to decide who you are at the end of the day, and you don't have to listen to anybody who has to tell you opposite of that. And if we believe that, we cannot receive the Christ child. We cannot receive God into our story because God wants to begin by revealing to us who he is and then he wants to continue saying, because of who I am and the light that I've sent into the world, I want to show you who you really are. And you have an option to agree with that or you have an option to disagree with that. And so if we hold on to this idol of self-definition, then we turn religion into a religion of self, that all it does is prop up our agendas and we don't give ourselves over to the light of God revealed in Jesus to show us who we really are and to believe that the story that God wants to tell us about ourselves is far more beautiful than any story that we would want to create on our own. And that brings us to the second image from this passage, that he is the light of all mankind. The light of God reveals what is truest about the world, about you. You have not been overlooked. You matter to him. God is nearer than you know. What we find in this imagery in John is it's people did not choose to come into the light. They chose to remain in the darkness. They said, no, thank you. I don't want whatever is being illuminated over there. I want to continue to be the emperor of my own little pile. I want to be king of my own castle because I'd rather accept this thing that I've crafted in the darkness than step into the light and risk giving myself over to something larger than myself. And I think this is where we begin to see the image of angels in the story that throughout scripture we see angels as these ambassadors of God, kind of the bridge between the divine and the material worlds coming. And what is the first thing that angels always say whenever they encounter someone? They say, do not be afraid. Joseph slips into a dream and an angel appears to him and says, do not be afraid because you're to take this woman as your wife and through her is going to be born Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. The angel comes to Mary and says, do not be afraid because you are highly favored and God is going to bring through you the salvation for the whole world. The angels appear to the shepherds just out in the middle of nowhere, these stinky outcasts of society, and they say, do not be afraid because your salvation has been born today in Bethlehem. And they begin to sing over them. We see over and over again this pattern of angels showing up in the divine story as these ambassadors of heaven. And they begin by saying, do not be afraid. Why are we afraid of the divine? And I love that even Nathaniel picked up on this in his poem. Why are we afraid of the divine entering into our material reality? Why is it easier to believe that this is all there is? Because we can control the narrative. Because if this is all there is, then we get to decide who we are and we get to decide how this thing works. 
We get to maintain control and to say, well, this is just the way the world works and I'm going to get my piece of the pie. And that's what life is all about. But angels, angels mess up the narrative. Angels show up and all of a sudden things have to change because you can no longer accept the world the way that it is. Angels show up and they begin to stir things up in us and we might actually begin to hope again that things could be different, that things could be better. And we begin to search for better narratives and before long we find ourselves at the doorstep of God himself asking him, is this the way that you plan for things to be or could it be better? And how do I come alongside of you and what you're doing in the world? I think if you and I are honest, we recognize that we're all kind of low-key afraid anyway. We're all afraid anyway. It's just that we choose not to recognize it. And I think that's what happens in the scriptures. I think that's what happens in our lives. That everybody's walking around with this low-grade anxiety, feeling that maybe things aren't the way they should be, but not really willing to admit that. And then angels show up and everything gets messed up. And people start to feel again. And people start to hope again. And people begin to open their eyes to let go of their own narratives of who they think they are and how the world works and begin to believe in something bigger than themselves. Our anxiety ends up just being buried until we encounter the divine. As Nathaniel said, punch me in the face with the divine. Maybe that's the only way that it'll stick. And is it not the sweetness of God? that the first encounter he has with the normal, boring, hopeless, everyday people is to say, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know this is terrifying. I know this is more than you can comprehend. And I know this is going to ask everything of you. But don't be afraid. Because I'm with you. Do you trust me? And this is what we see in the narrative of the angels. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, we come to this passage where it kind of comes back to the Nativity story in a very strange way. And many of you will be familiar, grossly familiar with this first verse, uh, but perhaps you're not familiar with what goes along with it. It says this, For God so loved the world, not God was so sick of the world or God was totally tired of everybody making a mess of things and said, well, you don't have a job. Why don't you go down there and do something about it? You know, Jesus is not like the deadbeat son that's sitting around on the couch. Like, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send Jesus to condemn us, to point the finger at us, but to save us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they had not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Which is to say, those people chose to stay in the dark and say, no, 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 no. I'm just going to continue to craft my own little world, my own empire. And guess what? God loves you so much that he'll let you do that. Whenever you hear about the wrath of God, that's what it means. Is God saying, I love you so much that I'll let you stick your hand in the fire. In the story of the prodigal. Right? It's the prodigal son comes to his father and says, give me my inheritance, which is to say, I wish you were dead. And it's the wrath of the father to say, okay, I'm going to give you what's entitled to you. I'm going to let you leave the house 
I'm going to allow you to find yourself in a distant land, destitute and hungry, because I love you so much and I respect you. Do you know that God respects you? Did you know that? That God loves you so much that he respects you and he will let you make decisions. He will let you choose to live in the darkness instead of coming into the light. He will let you be the king of your own, the queen of your own little castle. And it's in those moments sometimes that we judge God. If he's sovereign and he's all powerful, where is he? And saying, well, it's because God loves you so much that he's allowed you to wander away in hopes that you would turn around and that you would come back to him. Because guess what? When you turn back to God, he doesn't wait for you to get to the door and start wagging his finger. No, he runs out the front door to you as soon as he sees you on the horizon. He gathers you up in his arms. All of your excuses about what you did wrong, he just kind of bats them aside. And he puts rings on your fingers and sandals on your feet. He brings you into the house. He sets the table for you. He throws a party. There's a feast. And he says, my son, my daughter that was lost is now found. They were outside the house, but now they're in. And perhaps in the same way, when we think of God's perfection means he has to hover above the human experience, we need to do away with this idea that if God is sovereign, then he's in control which means people get what they deserve, which means if he doesn't show up in our agendas that maybe he's not real, and we begin to believe that the the divinity of God is represented in his respect for his own creation, in his love, in his fondness for his creation to allow us to do what we want. I think for you and I, the reasons that we're here this morning is because we recognize on some level Maybe it's just the tiniest hint of this in your own story, but that true freedom is not found through self-definition. True freedom is not found in us crafting our own reality. True freedom is found in being in the light of allowing the light of God that is Jesus to shine on us, to show us who we really are. In all of our deepest, darkest stuff, in all, warts and all, but in all of our most beautiful gifts that we have for the world. And to allow that light to shine on us and still deeper to say, in, in, even on a deeper level than all of my garbage and all of my heavenly attributes, at the core of who I am, I am the beloved of God. I am his child in whom he is well pleased. The light of God reveals who we really are rather than us pretending that we're something else, that we're someone else. In the Christmas story, we see this juxtaposition. Do you want to be a Herod who's threatened by the presence of God revealed in Jesus because you'd rather maintain your narrative? Or would you rather be like the shepherds who actually perceive this might be good news based on who I think I am and everybody else thinks I am? This might actually be good news later on in the story do you want to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees the religious elite who needed Jesus to prop up their systems their way of doing theology or do you want to be like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and I know you weren't expecting anybody to tell you to be like a prostitute in the Christmas season but do you want to be like those who said you know what that's a better story what's what's happening in the light that seems way better than what's going on in the world around me So in order to receive Jesus as he truly is, 
in this Christmas season, in this Advent season, you must approach him in that same level of humility that the angels did, that the shepherds did, that the magi did, that Mary did, that Joseph did, with awe and reverence. To stop importing your narrative and projecting it onto Jesus so that he props up your tribe but to come to him with a very serious awe and reverence to allow him to show you what God is really like and to allow him to show you who you really are in the light of his love. I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to take you through a quick meditation as we prepare to come to the table using that vision of coming in from the cold be all wrapped up and, and covered in all of these different false identities. And just in your mind's eye, I want, as I go through these things, I want you to just to peel those off one at a time to recognize this is not who I really am. And just to lay it aside. And then when we come to the table, you come only as you are, vulnerable, defenseless, like a child, to allow God to whisper over you once more at his table, you are my beloved. And so, God, we ask your Holy Spirit to descend upon your dear ones here. To show us our true selves, our child of God selves. First of all, we lay at your feet all of our accomplishments, all of our winning, all of our achievements, our awards, our promotions, our bonuses everything we do for work, thinking that it's our work, what we contribute that defines us. Next, Lord, we hand to you everything that everybody else says about us, that we have to be perfect in order to be accepted, that we have to be good givers, that we always have to present a happy face, that love is something that we have to earn, that we have to work hard in order to receive it. We lay all of that at your feet. Lord, we lay at your feet all of our cultural markers, believing that these things define who we are, our nationality, our ethnicity, our gender, our socioeconomic status, our heritage, our bloodlines. We lay all of these things at your feet, knowing they are not who we are at the core. we lay down our philosophies and ideologies, our religion. We lay down our worldviews. 
the things that we use to protect ourselves, to make ourselves feel strong, to make sense of the world. We lay down all of the perspectives of Jesus that we have used to prop up our worldviews instead of handing them over to him for redemption. We lay down all of the views of Jesus where we've used him as a stamp of approval on how we think the world works, on our politics, on our philosophy, and our religion. Father God, as we come before you, stripped of all of these things that we think make us who we are, all these lies that we've believed about our true nature, we come to you naked and afraid. We come to you vulnerable, with open hands, because we have nothing left to hold on to. Father, as we come to your table, as we sit to sup with you, would you begin to speak over us our true identity? It's not in being worthy or unworthy. It's not in being good or bad. It's not being in powerful or weak, in success or failure. Our true identity is defined by how you see us, that we are your beloved. And as we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, word made flesh, divine made human. May that remind us that our identity is not something that is earned, but can only be received. So we might go back out into the world and live within that light. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to come forward to the table. There's three stations. We're going to begin in the front rows and move our way back. But just come with open hands and allow him to surprise and delight you by what he says about who you really are. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.